0: This this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. From the border of Liberty Prosperity and Highway to the North, this is Safety Wars for Monday, November 21st, 2022. (laughs) Welcome to the show. So we have a truncated week here. I will not be on the air tomorrow night. That's Tuesday, November 22nd. Uh, I have a personal event that I am going to. Uh, It's our annual informal high school reunion Tuesday uh, before Thanksgiving every year. It's uh, so important that my wife reminds me every year. Hey, when are you going there? But anyway, if I do not you do not hear from me uh happy Thanksgiving we're gonna have some turkeys safety a little bit later on in the show yes turkeys we're also going to be talking about equipment calibration uh, assuming we do not run out of time we got a lot of news today this is some EPA news from California The U.S. EPA announced a settlement with the owner and operator of a trucking and logging company to resolve claims of violations of the Clean Water Act. Tanker trucks transporting milk from a facility near Fortuna, California, were involved in three separate driving accidents, all of which resulted in discharges of raw milk into waterways. One of the three incidents resulted in the death of a driver. Now, there's always a question here as to whether something is hazardous or not, uh, especially with food. All right, so if you have a food spill, is it hazardous or not? Well, this should go to uh, answer some of that, where it is likely yes. What was the fine for? The co- the company discharged the waters in the U.S. without a permit, which is a violation of the Clean Water Act. The U.S. law requires the safe management of materials to protect public and the environment and limit the need for costly and extensive cleanups. It is unlawful to discharge pollutants into waters in the U.S., except as authorized by a National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System permit issued under the Clean Water Act. This is actually comes up a lot more than you would think. A couple years ago, uh, there was a orange juice spill in port newark and that was one of the questions is this an actual spill or not it's orange juice what do you do with it uh i don't know uh we're going to assume that the uh wildlife got its dose of vitamin c for the day epa's responsible appliance disposable program honors 12 partners in accomplishments of appliance recycling This month, in November, the U.S. EPA announced it has awarded 12 partners under the Responsible Appliance Disposal Program for Outstanding Achievements in Appliance Recycling. The honors were announced as EPA marks the 16th year of program implementation and third annual RAD Leadership Awards Ceremony, which was hosted virtually blah, 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 blah. So congratulations to all. The EPA released its uh, evaluation uh, today of Pennsylvania's Chesapeake Bay Restoration Plan. Uh, the U.S. EPA announced today, after concluding its final evaluation of Pennsylvania's final phase three watershed implementation plan, also known as a WIP, that the state has not fully demonstrated how it will meet the Chesapeake Bay Program Partnership's 2025 Bay Restoration uh, Goals. States within the watershed committed. Through developing with that document, how they will each achieve and maintain water quality standards for the Chesapeake Bay. Despite recent investments and in progress in some sectors, Pennsylvania's final plan does not meet the partnerships targets for nitrogen and sediment reduction. So it's going to be status quo and basically, uh, enhance, uh, what they're calling an enhanced enforcement position. This includes increased agricultural, industrial, municipal stormwater inspections, increased permit oversight, heightened enforcement actions, amplified presence across all sectors, and review of certain federal funds to ensure that they are spent more efficiently in Pennsylvania to ensure adequate progress. So, there you go. Here's one first uh, change of pace. Stress out Americans, plan to buy fewer Christmas gifts and donate less to charity. Well, that usually happens when you have an hyperinflation and a gouverneur economy. And it's not so much the current gouverneur economy, it's that people think in the very near future it's going to be. It's probably what it is. When trust isn't broken, the average person has five people they can truly lean on for anything. Uh, so, this is a study uh, from, who is this from? do do let me see. And it does not mention who it's from. But basically, the uh, majority of uh, uh, Americans here, uh, well, no, 40% of respondents share that they have a strong relationship with small businesses, citing... Uh, that they understand the needs, offer personalized service, and are available. 74% of the respondents for this agree that a strong partnership helps simplify the complexities of life. Wanting a partner who is trustworthy, a good listener, and loyal. And uh, this is from New York, out of New York. Perhaps the sign of a true friendship is when trust isn't broken. To that point... It turns out that the average American has five people in their life they have a very strong relationship with and can lean on for anything. Okay, it was conducted, here it is, conducted by one poll for short payroll. So, uh, I don't know, the the basic common sense that I've always been told, and it's held since I'm a child, you only need a couple of good friends uh, to make it through life. Don't try to be a friend with everybody. Uh, That's really important. Just have a couple of good friends you could really rely on, and they can rely on you, and it makes your life a lot easier. You're not trying to please anyone. And the other thing is a friend is someone who calls you on your baloney, right? So on your BS. That is a good friend. There is a lot of friends that call me on my BS. I tell you what, thank God I have them. South Pole, it's record cold, November temperatures. Extreme cold temperatures continue to tumble at the South Pole. This is from the Daily Skeptic. All right. Uh, Three recent days have recorded a daily record with the 18th plunging to minus 45.2. So basically, uh, what it comes down to is this. And it's my position on global warming, and it has been for many, many years. I don't think that they know what's going on totally. Micro level. Yeah, local, regional, maybe. On Worldwide, no. (sighs) They still. uh, Large rail unions, Smart TD votes to reject labor deal as national strike moves closer. So this is another one just for your holiday, just in time for your holiday enjoyment. A air rail and transportation workers strike. Right? Uh, This is going to be all settled through negotiations and without a strike according to uh, Jeremy Ferguson, president of the Sheet Metal, Air Rail, and Transportation Workers, Transportation Division. Settlement would be in the best interest of workers, railroads, and shippers. And I don't know. Let's see what how this goes. I know a previous deal has uh, uh, fallen through that the president tried to negotiate earlier this year. Hopefully, we're not going to have another uh, stress on the economy here. So Jay Leno reveals, uh, we covered this story last week uh, with fire, right? Jay Leno is on the men. The former Tonight show host was discharged from the hospital Monday looking happy and healthy as he posed for a photo. Uh, let's see how he looks here. I know you cannot see this. Let me see if I could. You can see where down the right hand side of his face, starting at the cheek at the uh, jawline lower where he got burned, and they look like very serious burns. And uh, his arms are covered, so I don't know if he got burned on that. It looks like he might have one burn on his wrist. Uh, I'm glad it's going to work out for him. Oh, yeah, both hands are all fouled up in this photo. So uh, I'm wishing him a speedy recovery here. And, I, uh, you know, we we went over this last week with fire safety and liquids, flammable liquids, gasoline, anything like that. You gotta treat it with respect. Uh, with that, here's one for you, and I'm not gonna mention the name in the med- medications, but you can look them up. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are commonly taken to e- help to ease the pain associated with inflammation or swelling of the joints. And about uh, and taking this pain medication primarily too, may actually worsen arthritis inflammation according to one study. My advice to you would go and be to talk to your doctor or medical professional on that. Cold and dark. Kiev ready is for worst winter of our lives. So this is, again, let's talk about our... Come on, mixer board, cooperate. So... You Kiev, readies for the worst winter of our lives. So when the power is out as it is off in the high-rise apartment buildings and everywhere else, feel like a death trap. No lights, no water, no way to cook food. This is what it is with war. And war sucks. All right? Uh, one of the things that is very disheartening to me with this whole situation with Ukraine and Russia is and my mother is having some PTSD issues with it because uh, apparently people are t- being taken away to re education camps and being expatriated from Ukraine. Now, my as you, if you're a longtime listener, uh, my mother, uh, we did a uh, interview with Imogene Sava in February, and uh, well, it was released in February, it was then on New Year's Eve when I had COVID always when I have COVID, right? That's when it, really things really move. Uh, and my mother had been expatriated from Poland during World War II, and uh, not a very pleasant experience. We lost 12 people in those uh, concentration camps over there in my family. So uh, that's basically what the reports are coming out of Ukraine that that's happening. M- McDonald's and Walmart beef suppliers are criticized, for reckless antibiotic use in their meats. Oh, well, I don't know. But they're also supplying pretty much all the other places also. Uh, So the World Health Organization is warning against this stuff. I don't know. Uh, We've been using uh, this stuff for an awful long time. I don't know how it impacts anything, but that's, I think, something you need to make a decision for in your uh, life. In Colorado Springs, and I, a little bit here, uh, I know where the location of this shooting is. Uh, it was right down the street from a place I used to go to in Colorado Springs. But basically, uh, there was a sh- drag show at a Club queue and there was a sudden flash of gunfire, and also uh, in an interview from Richard... Fiero, this man's name, he was an interview, uh, the uh, interview, and he described uh, Mr. Fierro apparently charged through the chaos at the club, tackling the gunman and beating him with his own gun. Uh, I don't know exactly what I did. I just went to into combat mode, Mr. Fiero said, shaking his head. I know I had to kill this guy before he kills us. Now, the uh, anybody who's been through Uh, situational training for the public knows what are the three things. Uh, Now, flee, hide, right? If you could flee, flee, hide, or fight back is the third option. And that's what it's always going to be. There's thing where you fight first there's a little bit controversial out there. I know I'm a situational awareness trainer, and what we're trained to do is when we give the training is – If you have some experience, like law enforcement, military, or anything else, you have a chance to take the guy out, Take, and it's usually a guy, almost always a guy, take him out. Otherwise, flee, right? Hide and fight back is the third. Uh, Again, it's a little bit of a controversial thing, and this all goes into the whole Second Amendment thing, where uh, it's been called, in a lot of cases, right, where uh, you have victim disarmament zones. And these folks that do these mass shootings, if you ever notice, it rarely ever happens at a a gun range. So they go to places where there are a lot of people in public and uh, where they know their security might be lax. And that's where it seems to go. I don't know. It's every one of these things. They target schools. They target nightclubs. Pulse nightclub comes to mind. I know uh, some of the uh, hosts on this uh, radio network still have PTSD from that uh, because it was a local story, and it's a shame. Uh, but we had discussed this with the Uvalde, Texas situation well, as far as the school's concerned. And I'm off, and I was asked, well, Jim, how? Uh, what will you do? And my response is, well, what I would do is federalize the health and safety of teachers and schools. Well, why is that? Well, first of all and foremost, as we know, OSHA does not uh, include, does not regulate the school environment. That's left up to local jurisdictions. My opinion is that we should, for schools, it should be under federal OSHA, and then the schools that are not doing what they're supposed to, uh, putting in uh, at one point, uh, protections and everything else that goes along with uh, uh, with uh, protecting a workplace, now you have a situation that where they could get fined. Now you may say, well, Jim, that sounds ridiculous. You're going to be fining this. And I said, yeah, but the thing is, it's one more thing in your quiver, so to speak, uh, with that. One more thing where you would have federal oversight, federal government would come in, possibly uh, cite people under the general duty clause. And I tell you what, when unfortunately, uh, if they're not in the school districts and others who are, are were responsible or not meeting their standard of care, they're pretty much liable for everything. And there's no question on that. Uh, a lot of schools are lax, right? There's been accusations of lax, a lot of uh, with security. Uh, I'm, no, i have seen it myself. All right, I will leave it at that. I don't want to dig myself a hole here right now. I'll get comments. 5.6 magnitude quake kills more than 160 people in Indonesia. Powerful earthquake struck Indonesia, uh, Indonesia's main island of Java on Monday. Wow. Elon Musk is doing this from uh, New York Times. What Elon Musk is doing to Twitter is what he did at Tesla and SpaceX, which is basically fire people, talk of bankruptcy, and tell workers to be hardcore. That's his model, and him being up until this acquisition, the richest man in the world, he may still be uh, seems to work for him. I think, right? However, what kind of working environment does that uh, does that uh, 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 does that promote? Right? Do you really want people to be? stressed out and fatigued all the time that may not be uh a good good and conducive to any type of working environment whether it's software whether it's uh construction maritime doesn't matter what it is i have people always stressed out a lot of people are leaving the company right uh with this the you better watch out i would caution him uh would be they uh Don't get rid of the people that run the place, like open up, uh, like open up, know how to operate the access control or anything like that. So we're going to take a brief time out here, and here we go. You are listening to Safety Wars. Tomorrow's Safety Today. (laughs) Safety Wars is streaming now. SafetyFM.com. Sorry about that, I'm back. I took too long of a break. Hold on, hold on. Okay, I am back. All right, let's go into some financial news. Dow Jones Industrial fell slightly today, 33,700. S&P 500 also down, 39,49. NASDAQ at 11,024. Russell 2000 at 1839. U.S. Treasury notes are up 3.8%. Uh, percent. That's a 10 year Treasury. And Bitcoin, it came up a little bit today, but it's under 16,000. It's holding at 1585. 1585- 27. Crude oil is under $80 a barrel. All right, so we're looking into lower fuel prices. Precious metals. Gold is at 17 dollars Silver, $21.21. Platinum, $1,005. That's over $1,000 now. And palladium at $1,1914. $1, Announce. So things are looking up there on some things and not so much on others. You do. Okay. Lining up our next story here. So OPEC and I, I... OPEC and others... High output increase ahead of restrictions on Russian oil. Raising oil production would partially reverse the group's contestant's decision to cut supplies in October. It's from the Wall Street Journal. Saudi Arabia and other OPEC oil producers are discussing an output increase. Well, that's probably why the price of oil dropped here to under $80 a barrel. So uh, that's what they're going to be talking about in, of uh, on December 4th. Here's another positive front. With uh, we had discussed fentanyl deaths, and w- last week where we have potential uh, uh, vaccinations. Right? I don't even know. <laughs> you know, I use that word guardedly. Vaccinations after this whole COVID thing, where is it a therapeutic or is it a vaccination? So vending machines stocked with overdose-reversing nasal spray are part of the latest attempt to diminish or right, diminish. A record tide of drug deaths. The FDA in some states have loosened restrictions on drugs, including Narcan, that are straight into the nose to reverse an opioid overdose. So I would uh, suggest everybody to go out and get that training if it's available in your community for Narcan. I mean, that's uh, something really important to have, especially if you're in law enforcement or EMTs or uh, firefighters or anything like that. Biden approves emergency, yeah, get this, right, in upstate New York. Like 70 issues of freaking snow up there? Wow. All right, so Biden approves emergency declaration for New York of its severe snowstorm. So they were calling out the New York National Guard over the weekend to help, and the New York Guard, uh, which are two different organizations, uh, to help with the snow removal up in uh, northwestern New York around the Buffalo area i can't imagine that much snow i mean you know i'm from new jersey where often especially central new jersey down and down south there's an inch of snow and it's a, like a major disaster i don't know how to do uh no all of that other stuff man 70 inches aye, aye, aye. and by the way now you come to new york new york is huge so, I'm right here in the border of liberty and prosperity down in Rockland County. And to get to Buffalo, it's literally like a 14 hour drive with or without snow. Here's a little bit of a uh, cultural shift here Generally, Generation Z and uh, younger millennials shelve home ownership. The average age of first time homebuyers climbs to 36, the highest ever recorded according to the people who actually go out and uh, track this. And that is from the national association of realtors. So it used to be 33 years in 2021. Now it's 36. Well, probably because people's credit is shot to now, and uh, the uh, no wages are down uh, relative to inflation. Maybe that might have something to do with it. And, you know, our, one of the main gauges of, on our economy here is this uh, whole thing with home ownership. Who's buying houses? Who's building houses? Who's supplying stuff to houses? Uh, who's repairing houses? Who's doing this? Now, it's uh, crazy, but this is the way it is. We're headed towards some... We're headed towards some... What's the word I'm... Away from the American dream, right? Into... Uh, an American nightmares, which is the rental market, where you're making someone else rich and building up equity in someone else's apartment, rather, uh, or property, rather than your own real estate. Right? One of the easiest. Now, one of my good friends of the program, uh, Murray Sabrin, who is a uh, nationally recognized financial guy, he's uh, a local guy up here from. He taught in Ramapo University. Ramacopo College, right in my neighborhood for many years. And he said, look, you got to decide for yourself what's best. He owned a condo, for example, up in the Fort Lee area forever, right? I mean, that's where him and his wife, Florence, uh, lived. And he, what he said was this. Had he known then what he knows now, he would have never bought the condo because it would have been cheaper for him to rent. And you know, being a financial guy who's very uh, uh, savvy when it comes to investing, that's coming from him. Most people are not that savvy, so you got to decide for yourself there. And here's another one, just in time for Thanksgiving. This is coming from New York Times. Scientists don't agree on what causes obi- obesity, but they know what doesn't. So we've been covering this over the last couple of weeks with the uh, Ozempic and the Welbutrin, I believe it is. Uh, I don't know if that's the correct one, but it's Ozempic, and there is another one for weight loss, which is still semaglutide, right? Same uh, uh, where we're dealing with shortages, and that's used as a uh, diet drug now. So more than 40% of U.S. adults, right, uh, are costing the citizen about $173 billion because of obesity. And uh, there is no consensus whatsoever about what the cause of obesity is. They, you know, and having a lifelong weight struggle since I left college, I can tell you, people who eat a lot are often lighter than me and smaller than me. People who eat less than me are often a lot bigger than me. So there's issues with exercise, diet, hormones, and everything else uh, with this stuff. But, uh, you know, it's, you know, there's a lot going on. One of the things, again, this is just peer-to-peer advice. I'm not an expert on this. I think that if you are have a weight problem, you probably shouldn't get medical advice uh, Medical uh, help with that. I'm not saying psychological. Sometimes it causes is psychological. I'm not going to discount that or stress. Uh, but it could be uh, other things going on there with that. And you know try to try to uh, no work hand in hand with a doctor, right, or other healthcare professional with this. So. Next story on Thanksgiving. So we talked about ritual a couple of months ago, uh, about and uh, the name escapes me of the uh, anthropologist. Ritual is very ritual is very important. We have rituals. Thanksgiving dinner is a ritual. Rituals predate spoken word. Because that's how knowledge was passed down, was through ritual, through storytelling. So here you have uh, forerunners of Homo sapiens, Neanderthals, right? We're cooking, right? This is uh, some new uh, thing. Right? Some scientists estimate our early human cousins may have been using fire to cook their food almost 2 million years ago. And why is this important? As cooking food marked the, more than a change of lifestyle, it helped fuel our evolution, giving us bigger brains because the food was pre-digested and you're able to get more protein, absorb more protein from cooked food than raw food sometimes depending on the food from what I understand here. And later down the line, all of this uh, bigger brains were to help become the centerpiece of feasting rituals that brought communities together like Thanksgiving. Uh, Big thing, right? And send our blood to be a social creature and to have these rituals. So Thanksgiving is a good thing. Now, we get a lot of, yeah, this time of year, you go on YouTube, pardon me. I'm still getting over COVID here. I'm going to random coughing fits, so... If you hear anything or I miss the mute button, that's what it is. And in the safety field, we usually have our, uh, we talk about turkeys because everybody, and if you can't even play a video, some people get a good laugh over this. I don't know. Laughing at other people's misfortune isn't always good, but you're talking to the guy that watches Fail Army on Pluto TV every night. So, Thanksgiving Day is full of family get-togethers, giving thanks, and everything else. But what what am I talking about? What's the most dangerous thing? It causes millions of dollars in damage every year and uh, everything else that goes along with it. And that is deep frying that turkey. One of the... So, what do you do? So, this is basically what you have. And they sell them at nationally known warehouse slash hardware stores. So you have a kettle. Usually it looks like five gallons, roughly. I've never done this. And you have grease in it. And you go and you prepare the turkey, however you're going to do it, right, with, uh, 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 with uh, I don't know if they marinate it and they put it in salt or, no, how else, no, this is done. How do you even prepare that, right? Uh, and you go and you heat up this hot oil and you drop the turkey in it. And what happens? Oil goes all over the place. And because you have a portable fryer and you have an exposed flame underneath, what the hell do you think happens? You have a massive fl- fire. So, number one, there's a lot of stuff that you could do. And I downloaded this from the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So there's a couple of things that you got to know before you fry a turkey. One, don't buy the bird too early. two, If it's bought fresh, keep in the refrigerator at 40 degrees Fahrenheit or less and cook within one to two days. If you bought frozen, it takes four to five pounds per day to thaw safely in the refrigerator. So for a 12-pounder, it will take 2.5 to three days in the refrigerator to thaw. Then it needs to be cooked within one to two days. Smaller birds work best for flying. Frying, not for (laughs) flying. Yeah, for flying, right? The turkey should be no larger than 12 pounds, or if you can fry parts and spread, instead, where's my math today? Instead, such as breasts, wings, or legs, it should be fresh, completely thawed, and not stuffed. If you bought the frozen turkey and did not have time to thaw it, there are ways of thawing it out. You could go and look that up. That's a big, you know, thing. When working with large amounts of hot oil... Select a cooking vessel large enough to completely submerge the turkey without it spilling over. The oil should cover the turkey by 1 to 2 inches. Select a safe location outdoors for deep fat frying a turkey. Heat the cooking oil to 350 degrees Fahrenheit. Very slowly, this is where people foul up. Very slowly and carefully lower the turkey into the hot oil. Monitor the temperature of the oil with a thermometer during cooking. Never leave hot oil unattended. So this is where people mess up. All right. So this is uh, this whole setup. They say minimum of 10 foot away from the house. I would go further out. Right. Where people have problems, and this actually happened in my neighborhood a couple years ago. They this builder just started, uh, just ended building a McMansion. So they decided to celebrate, right? Like a lot of companies do, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, you celebrate. No, you may, and of course there's beer involved and other alcoholic beverages. So they decided, well, it was cold out. We don't want to be cold out. So they decided to set up the turkey fryer in the garage. Well, you can tell uh, what happened between the beer and too much oil and everything else, and not throwing the turkey out. They dropped it in the fryer, and it was a massive explosion. Because what happens when water hits hot oil, it disassociates into hydrogen and oxygen, and uh, it has a fuel, right? of hydrogen and oxygen. Two parts of the fire, of the fire triangle, and then you got heat in there, and then you have a massive thing. I do know the fire tetrahedron, right? Yes, and you have a chemical reaction of free radicals, and you get a massive, massive fire. 10 foot, 20 foot in the I've seen videos, these things are up. It's like the towering inferno, right? Which, by the way, I'm trying to get one of the background actors for that on the show. Anyway, it's my wife's cousin. He was in that. But anyway, I digress. And it's big, and it burns down the house uh, before you know it. So what else do you need? You also need a fire extinguisher, one that's good for grease fires. All right, it says select a safe location outside, outdoors. Yeah, I, I would hope so. Allow approximately 3 to 5 minutes of cook time per pound. When reaching the approximate time needed, check to see if the turkey is safely cooked by removing the turkey from the oil, draining the oil from the cavity with a food thermometer, and which means you got to put it in there correctly to begin with, and check the internal temperature of the bird. Do not test the temperature while the turkey is submerged in oil. Turkey is safely cooked when the turkey reaches a minimum internal temperature of 165 degrees in the innermost part of the thigh and wing and the thickest part of the breast. if the turkey has not reached 165 degrees in all three locations, then return it to the hot oil for additional cooking. So maybe you should make a cooking show here, right, out of this. But that's basically it. I mean, you know, people go out there, Right, I, I, you know, and uh, no, and uh, you got to prepare for cooking, especially if you have a lot of people over. I know my brother John, God rest uh, his soul, he uh, was an expert at that. For cooking for large amounts of people, every club he belonged to, and they had pig roasts and uh, other things going on where he was in charge of the food, and it was you no, know, everything was very. Uh, Mm, What happened here? Everything was very... uh, Oh, there we are. I thought I knocked myself off the air here. Uh, Everything was very uh, organized. I mean, you know, I know you used to start cooking this stuff a couple of days ahead of time. Uh, I remember uh, a friend of mine, his wife was a little bit annoyed because he was supposed to do a pig roast for Easter, and I believe it was pig, or was it lamb? They had the whole thing out there on the spittle. Well, he, no, he was supposed to start this at 1 o'clock in the morning so they could eat in the early afternoon. Well, what do you think he did? Or the night before, what do you think he did? He started at 6 o'clock in the morning. We went out all over New Jersey to my relatives and everything else. We came back at like 8 o'clock at night, and they had were just sitting down to eat. Let's just say the wife was not very happy. So let's take a brief break here and we will get back to you in a minute. Safety Wars is streaming now. SafetyFM.com And we are back. OSHA recordables, first aid cases, catastrophic losses. You want answers? So do I. This is Jim Polzel with Safety Wars. And now we're really back. Okay. We're going to talk about air monitoring and more specifically calibration of equipment today. And this is something near and dear to my heart, right? So sometimes you get into a little bit of a snag with some clients, and it's getting less and less common today, especially since you have to educate your clients on the importance of equipment calibration, specifically with industrial hygiene audits and everything else that goes along with it. Because if you cannot prove that your equipment is calibrated, you could have a big issue if you have any type of litigation or regulatory oversight, or even with the workforce, right? So when I give health and safety training, now I was going to make a comment on behavior-based safety where I had a discussion with someone today, but I, that, I can hold off till Wednesday on that one. But when I train people, like for the 40 hour hazmat or hazardous waste operations and emergency response and everything else, the approach I take is that if you are a worker, this is what you need to look for. And some people like it, some people don't like it. And I say, there are one should, right? So let's talk about it air monitoring, right? And we have two things air monitoring and the air sample. We're talking about air monitoring. Air sampling is when you take an actual air sample or you pull air through a sample medium. So, for example, 37 millimeter mixed cellulose ester cassette or a, a open faced uh, PVC. I think it's PVC for asbestos or, or uh, have different sample medium. And then you send it out for analysis In the laboratory. You can have whole gas sampling. And all of this stuff that's calibration is important with that. And you're worried mostly about airflow uh, airflow and air volume for that sort of thing. So let's talk about air monitoring since that's where people actually are. are, are it's more common. So air monitoring has some advantages over uh, air sampling where, Air monitoring is instantaneous. You have a carbon monoxide monitor. You have a photo ionization detector. You have another type of equipment, and it's instantaneous. You take it, and you measure it, and you got it. But this is what the problem is. Now, that's up and it's instant, unlike an air sample where you're sending it out. There's some advantages and disadvantages. The main advantage is that it's immediate. The other thing but the main disadvantages is that you may not only be sampling what you are interested in so if you're interested in lower explosive limits for LELs or lower flammable LFLs you're going to be measuring all flammable materials in the atmosphere that you're dealing with if you're going to be dealing with a photoionization detector or a flame ionization detector that you're going to be picking up all things that are ionized uh Up to what it's able to do. So if you have a 10.7 electron volt bulb on a PID, you're only going to be measuring up to 10.69 electron volts with things that have a a ionization potential of up to 10.69 electron volts, for example. So you have to know what you're doing. You have to know what that meter does. Typically, where do I see it? If you're working at a chemical plant, you're working in an oil refinery or oil terminal underground storage tank or above-ground storage tank work, emergency responses, confined space entries, or on hazardous waste site cleanups and responses. And you have to make sure that that equipment is responding properly. Now, you're going to say, well, OSHA does not have anything in there, blah, 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 on calibration, so therefore I don't have to do it. And that's what we often hear. Well, guess what? OSHA is not the end all and the be all of air monitoring or safety. No offense to OSHA. OSHA is the minimum requirements. It's not the maximum, and never. And if your employees get hurt, that right? Your employees get hurt. That does not mean, hey, I'm off the hook because I followed OSHA regulations, right? Because you still have the general duty clause and. Uh, there are other stuff. So, the, what I use for calibration bump testing for what I do is the National Fire Protection Association NFPA standard 350, the guide for confined space entry and work. So, they give you detailed instructions on what, how to calibrate. So, what is calibration? Calibration is, is that you're basically comparing your monitor to a known standard and making sure that your monitor is reading what that known standard is. It doesn't get any more uh, simple or difficult than that. Back in the old days, we used to have a thing called a trim pod on all these equi- on all this equipment, and you would have to have a jeweler's screwdriver, and you would have to go in there and adjust the monitor manually to go and figure out what things were. So, for example, you would expose it to, uh, we would do a simple Two point calibration. Normally, that's what, what you're doing is a normal, simple two point calibration. Can you do more than that? Absolutely. Then you have to develop a trend line. And we'll talk about that in a minute to figure out exactly, and in a formula to figure out exactly what, for that trend line, what the formula is so you could actually go and uh, know what, what the response is. So, for example, let me, let me, uh, forward here, and I'll give you an example. So you expose the meter to zero air, clean air. That could be background air. That could be actually in a cylinder, similar to a pro- handheld propane cylinder or something like that. And you would expose it to that. And you would go, and you would have to physically adjust it. This is zero. Then you would send it to a known concentration of gas. And you would adjust it. To whatever it is, if it's twenty ppm or whatever you're doing, you adjust it to twenty. Now, back in the day, what uh, what we used to have to do was uh, we would fi- we would figure out and we would de- develop a slope right on a graph, and we would use the simple uh, uh, y equals mx plus b, where you have the y is the a y-coordinate on a graph, equals m, right, your slope on the line, x, meaning the x, meaning x-axis, and b, meaning your y-intercept. And you would have to go through it and develop a calibration curve. And if you had more than two points, you would have to develop a calibration curve and develop a formula for that. Right. And you would be able to say, well, when my meter is reading one, it's actually one and a half or zero point five or something like that. And you would have to adjust this. This is what what it was 30 years ago. And if you're working in a laboratory, some laboratory equipment is still like that uh, with that. Now, what do we have today? We have computers where the computer does all of this. And everything's digital. Everything is nothing's analog equipment anymore. Everything is digital, right? It's off and on. There are some advantages to the analog because you get to know your meter and how it works after a while. Uh, the disadvantages is that uh, the usually the data logger on all this equipment records the calibration. You're able to do this, and you're able to put this into a docking station now. The docking station records all of the readings and all of the calibration information. Now, some monitors, uh, and I'm going to use one, oxygen is the most common one. They have a one-point calibration. So you're going to expose it to 20.9% uh, oxygen, right, or 209,000 parts per million. And you're going to adjust the thing. It would the, Now the monitor does all the adjusting itself to what that one-point calibration is. Now, you're going to say that, and you go through the whole calibration. Now, when do you calibrate? I'm going to tell you, follow the manufacturer's instructions. However, on my jobs, every all the equipment is calibrated every day. End of discussion, right? Period. That's what I do. If the, I also calibrate if the meter's function is in doubt, if it sucks up water or moisture, that does happen occasionally. If it sucks up dirt or other contamination, the other thing is if you're going to be screening soil samples, for example, with air monitoring equipment, you only want a single gas monitor like a photoionization detector, not a five gas monitor where you're going to be measuring oxygen, lower explosive limit H2S, and another gas, usually carbon monoxide and you can have a photo ionization detector put in on there because what happens is if the dirt's really contaminated, you're going to destroy sensors. So you just want to use a single one on that. Uh, if, if What's your client's requirements? Some oil companies require you to calibrate it every day. That's why I do it every day. In accordance with the manufacturers and distributors' instructions, I try to get all my equipment uh, done uh, annually by a third party and get a certificate of calibration. And sometimes you have a meter that says, oh man, now if your meter is reading all effed up and it's all screwed up and you say, man, this is, looks high. Don't assume that the meter is wrong. Assume that the meter is right. And then you may want to go and verify the readings with the calibration. That's one kind of thing. And you write everything down. We're going to get into that in a minute. What is bump testing? Bump testing is solely to verify that the sensors are working, not necessarily working, uh, reading uh, accurately, and the alarm sounds. Often back in the day when we had very large sensors on equipment, we, uh, I mean, they were like, uh, the sensors were like uh, eight or nine quarters put together, that size, right? People used to take caps of magic markers or would hold it up to their gas tank. Yeah, people actually did this, and they would go and they would take readings. And, oh, yeah, it's working, it's working, blah, blah. And then the thing, once in the early 2000s, late 1990s, when the sensors, especially after September 11th, things got miniaturized. Now the sensors are about the size of an eraser on a pencil. Yeah, yeah, kids, go and look up what a pencil is, right? I actually had people look what a pencil was and a pencil eraser. They didn't know, never heard of it, right? Some millennials, and Z's, all right. So when it's that size, you hold up a uh, 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 cap from a uh, magic marker, that so you're going to blow out that sensor. I've seen sort of, certif- I've seen two certified industrial hygienists do that, because I had to train them how to do air sampling and air monitoring. Believe it or not, they were CIHs. Very frustrating. All right, that's not the typical C.I.H., but I I really run into some winners here. I wait until I tell you the story. What happened today on the job? Holy, holy, holy groovetalk! Right? When when now? When do you do a bump test? All right? You have to figure out uh, what the equipment says. Usually, it's done daily so what i normally do is i do a cal a bump test or a cal check at the end of the day to verify everything is working i do a full-blown calibration in the morning you need both because now let's say you get into a jam well what's working and what's not working was it working through the day now i'm going to tell you this do not do not everybody listening do not ever never ever ever Rely on the data logging feature of these uh, this equipment ever, especially for calibration logs. You want to manually enter it in on a logbook or form with the following minimum data: the date of the test, serial number of the gas uh, monitor and sensors tested, the serial number of any docking or calibration station used to perform the test, or name of the. Ind- or name of the individual conducting the test, if you're doing it manually, the old-fashioned way, type and concentration of each each gas used to conduct the test, the result of the test for each sensor in the gas monitor tested, and a signature date and of printing your name and your company. If you don't think that this is important, this is usually in the top 10 questions after an accident investigation begins. Uh, by, and you're going to be asked that by a government, by the governor or governor by the government, hopefully the governor is not going to be asked that by the government or a very savvy attorney. And if you don't have that information available, you're, you're screwed. Now I hear this all the time. I don't have to, uh, log in any readings ever because there's a data logger on that. Well, this is what happens. For the average work, you may have a complete computer setup and re, uh, be able to do this reliably and everything. Okay, great. If you can do that, great. That is not the typical working environment. Typical working environment for all this air sampling stuff is that you're dealing with someone who has a sa- safety as a secondary job, or you're dealing with a safety company where nobody knows what the hell is going on, where they're just supplying bodies and not a mind, so they have it on there. And they so and they don't give them the equipment necessary to download any data from that thing. So, and what else happens? Equipment goes dead, equipment breaks, equipment gets stolen. You want to talk about things getting stolen? Guess what? You need to go and write things down especially if you're a confined space entry attendant. Because if you're a confined space entry attendant, there's an accident. They're not going to be thinking downloading the equipment. They're going to be asked, what is the air monitoring results right then and there? I've gone through it a number of times. And what do do you have? I have them written down. I'm the attendant. Your only job is to be out there taking readings. All right? That's what it is. You're not allowed to be distracted. Now, if you're dealing with a huge uh, uh, job where you have multiple data loggers going and everything else, you're not going to be going out there with a clipboard out there. What I used to do, how often do you do them? I recommend every 15 minutes. Most people do them every half an hour. What I used to do when I had to have air monitoring equipment around a site, like uh, some of the sites would only require like a – uh, a respirable dust monitor or a Q-ray or something like that uh, to do uh, dust, dust, I don't Q-ray scratcher. That's not what they call it, but uh, what they're doing, you no know, stuff at the perimeter of a hazardous waste site, let's say, and they're not requiring PM 10 sampling or anything like that. What I would do is I would hang up every one of these things at a station, have it do the data logging and I would have a clipboard at each station and I, as I did my rounds to check on the equipment, I would write down readings, what they are, the average readings, the peak readings, things of that nature. Again, it's like, well, Jim, you're old-fashioned. You don't believe that blah, blah, blah. blah. No. Yeah, I am old-fashioned, but I, I rely on equipment. I rely on, but I don't trust it. Big difference. I don't trust the air monitoring equipment. Now, let's say that you're out there doing air sampling air monitoring. You have to make sure that you know what you're monitoring for. So getting back to what I said at the beginning of this, you have a, uh, you're an employee. You have a person out there doing air monitoring. You really want to trip them up? You Ask him a couple of questions. It's usually a him. What are you monitoring for? Um, Is the air safe? Is the air safe? What are you monitoring for? And No. Well, let's start off from the beginning. Is the air safe? Yes or no? That's a progression. Oh, yeah. What are you making that judgment on? And are you actually monitoring for what's actually there? Three questions, very uncomfortable questions that you asked. Because especially the major disaster, those are the three areas that they're going to fail. If you're in a monitor, know what you're monitoring for. Know the PELs. Know what the uh, exposure limits are. Know what your action levels are. Know what they're going to do to you. Have it written down. I always have it written down right on the air monitoring log. Why is that? People forget. I forget sometimes uh, with this stuff. If you're under pressure, you're under. You're distracted and everything else. Because if there is a regulator that comes out and says, "Oh, you're look at you, you're in a nice." Uh, uh, Confined space entry attendant. Yeah. Well, what are you monitoring for? What's it for? And tell me something about it. What's the hazards of not having oxygen? What's the hazards of having an LEL that's too high? What's the hazards of this? And let me reiterate: with this, you have to. uh, If you don't have enough oxygen in the air, right? And that's why, by law, you have to monitor for that first. Then, the equipment doesn't work. And knowing how to operate this equipment confidently is how we're going to win that safety war. And if you need further information, give us a call at 845-269-5772, or you can email me at jim at safetywards.com. Have a great night. If I don't talk to you this week, have a happy Thanksgiving. Oh, wrong button.